And welcome into Studio 2. I am Avi wolfman Arendt. And I am Cherry Gregg. Avi, it's really good having you back in Studio 2. It's great to be here. Hope you had a good vacation. I had a decent vacation. I listened while I was on oh, vacation. Oh, you did? The show sounded great. Oh. A little too good. <laughs> well, I was looking for a pink slip at my desk, but I got <laughs> Well, we missed you. We okay. definitely are uh, happy for to have you back. back in the seat. So later this hour... R. Eric Thomas joins us to discuss his new book. It's a hilarious collection of essays called Congratulations, The Worst is Over. Congratulations, The Worst is Over. (laughs) Good title, right? And in just a few minutes, uh, we'll be joined by Patrick Harker, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, who will talk to us about, of course, the Mm -hmm. economy. So if you want to join that conversation about inflation, interest rates, and more, email us. Studio 2 at WHYY.org. So many questions for him. So, Avi, I don't know if you remember this because you were on vacation. Yeah, for right? 100 years. Yes, yeah. for, but we have to do headlines now. Oh, right. Yes, okay. So we're going to dig you, in. Why don't you start? <laughs> so last night, Avi got kind of crazy as storms moved into the area in the evening hours. I don't know what it felt like in the city, but I was down in Delaware at a grocery store in Wilmington just before 6.30 when the skies opened. Yeah. And I got drenched. I haven't been drenched like that in years. It was a scary storm. It was a scary storm. Yeah, it was a t- tornado watch and warning was issued for many parts of the region. Um, and a funnel cloud was sighted near Coatesville. Strong winds of up to 55 miles per hour. Trees were down around the region. 135,000 Outages were reported last night, and Pico says there's still over 800 outages as of this morning. And I was in Wilmington, which is just really close to Hawkinson, Delaware, where someone's roof was literally ripped off their yeah. house. Yeah. So it got serious. It certainly did. Get, I was here at the studio when the, the worst of it passed through. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not this studio, the other studio where we do our newscasts, and it was scary. Um, today, the National Weather Service is going to be out in that area around Newark, Delaware, Hocassin, Chadsford, mm-hmm. Glen Mill, sort of lower Chester, Delaware County area, um, doing some some survey damage. That gives you a sense. Usually wherever they go the yeah. next day is tends to be where it was the worst. So we're thinking about the folks in that area. We're thinking about the folks all over the region who were impacted by this pretty severe uh, summer storm that just swept through with such fury. Such fury, yeah. And I got to mention that the National Weather Service issued 123 severe thunderstorm warnings throughout its service territory. Um, this is the second largest, or highest number of, of severe thunderstorm warnings. 132 were issued back in July of 2021. So, I mean, it just seems like the storms are getting a little worse. We're getting more. And by the way, the Phillies had to postpone their game um, yeah. last night, which was Positive, which was a good thing because the storm hit right when they would have been close to the first pitch. Yeah, I think it's supposed to start right around 640. Yeah, yeah so yeah. that was the right call. Um, now we're going to move to a story about local politics, city politics. This comes from the Inquirer, mm. Sean Collins Walsh, who digged into the spending by a political action committee, a PAC, associated with Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney. Now, you might be a bit confused by that because Mm -hmm. why does Mayor Jim Kenney need a PAC? He's about to leave office. He's not running for any other office. Well, when this PAC started in 2020, Kenney certainly had ambitions, it seems, Mm -hmm. of higher office somewhere else, perhaps statewide office. And the idea of this PAC, as the story lays out, was to do some spending that would help boost his statewide profile, perhaps set him up for a 
gubernatorial, senatorial run. That never panned out. And so what happened with the money? Well, they followed the money and a lot of it, the the vast majority of the $780,000 that was spent was spent on consultants, um, not boosting other candidates around the state, which was kind of the original Mm -hmm. purpose, it seemed. So uh, this is not illegal. Nothing is illegal in how this money was spent, even the money that was spent on uh, a box at the Phillies game and and treating folks to food at that box. The laws allow this, um, but it certainly does make you question a little bit of the purpose of this and how it might be leveraged for influence peddling because the people giving money to this this pack were a lot of them you know major unions in the area or other political power players. Yeah, I, that and I my response to this was it may not be illegal but it doesn't look right, you know. Yeah, right. Um and as you mentioned, you know, the largest pack were trade unions. They accepted donations of up to $50,000. So you wonder if 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 I don't know what, you know, Mayor Kenny's going to do in the future, but you wonder whether or not it could impact his his political future if he decides to raise money just based on what this looks like or it may not affect anything but you right, know right, right, it right. does mean we've had other discussions about pack money and yes. raising money and the and, race, and, the, yeah. and the squishy laws around it and this is just another you know maybe there's it's time to do some reforms there i don't know yeah i mean certainly it raises some questions you know and like we said just it's not illegal as yeah. long as you're using the money for political it just purposes. Looks weird, yeah. Which again, that's a kind of vague category yeah. in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what we're talking about here, we should be clear, are not are not the same rules that would apply to a mayoral campaign because this was no, not money no. raised for a city campaign. Mm-mm. This is this is we're talking about Pennsylvania law here. So again, it's a it's a totally different layer. Um, but another a layer worth looking at clearly. Yeah, and I mean a lot has happened um, that could have could affect his future politically. I mean we've pandemic gun violence, so we'll see what happens with yeah. Mayor Kenny. Some of the money was yeah. spent on dinners. Yes, it was, Depends and maybe an early dinner. Yeah, and thank you for that setup. <laughs> that was a nice. That was like oh my gosh, we were playing like volleyball. Times. You just set just it for like a spike. Yes. So a new analysis by flowing. Data says people in Pennsylvania will apparently eat dinner earlier on average than folks in of any other state. The peak dinner time in Pennsylvania is 5.37 p.m. They got very specific here, Avi, <laughs> with a typical start time for the dinner before 5 p.m. I don't believe this. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, all this data, you know, uh, comes from the American Time Use Survey. Um, I I should mention our neighbors in Delaware eat around 6 p.m. New Jersey starts about 15 minutes after 6. And, you know, dinner and after dinner dinner events have been trending earlier nationwide. D.C., where we're both from, just outside Mm -hmm. of D.C., they are holding out. They are the latest dinner eaters averaging around 7, 10 p.m. I don't know what time you eat dinner. I'm more of like a 7 person uh, yeah after i i don't i there's something about this that's not connecting or making sense five for me. o'clock just I, seems... I don't even know anyone who i don't think i know you anyone like be hungry are you, you going to bed I, I i really genuinely wonder <laughs> are they counting kids who eat really really like young kids who eat really yeah. really early as their own category is this just adults i want to dig deeper into this data set at some point i don't really actually want to dig deeper but i i did it doesn't compute for me yeah it's not do you really think up. the average Pennsylvanian eats dinner at five thirty-seven? No. And well, what we don't know is why this data. What is supporting this data? What's behind it? So, well, it's the Census Bureau, the, yeah, apparently. Yeah, but we don't know why th- these people, al- 
allegedly eat so early. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> and I'm throwing allegedly in there because I don't know if I believe it. But. All right. Well, let's get to some harder data, the economy. OK, yes. so let's let's the fa- the past three years, we've heard a lot about the threat of a recession, uh, felt the pain of high inflation, grocery bills and everyday consumer mm-hmm. items cost on average about 10 percent more. That makes a real dent on a household budget. But now some good news. Things, economically speaking, are looking up. Inflation is down. Unemployment mm-hmm. is at a record low. Wages are rising. Consumers are still spending. The only hiccup is high interest rates, and the Federal Reserve is considering whether it needs at least one more hike. So to walk us through all of what's going on in our economy, both in the region and nationally, we have the Philadelphia Federal Reserve President Patrick Harker with us in Studio 2. President Harker, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And if you have questions, by the way, for President Harker, you can email us at studio2 at org. So, Patrick, we're happy to have you here. So talks of a recession have been dissipating over the last mm-hmm. few weeks with economists saying we might just get a soft landing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we I want you to sort of explain what signs experts like yourself look at to determine whether or not we're going to make that soft landing and what exactly that means. Right. So back to, let's start with the Fed's mandate, maximum employment, stable prices. And we define stable prices as 2% inflation. We're not there. And inflation is too high. It's hurting the average American, particularly those of modest means, right? The ones who are spending a lot of money on groceries and so a big part of their budget. So we're moving in the right direction. So what do we look at? Unemployment rates, inflation numbers, and overall economic growth. While it's not perfect, I think there is a path uh, to getting that soft landing. What is that soft landing? Taking inflation down to 2% over time, and it's going to take some time, without damaging the employment markets in a significant way. Unemployment may tick up a little bit, but we don't expect it to tick up a lot. And so we'll get back to what economists call the natural rate of unemployment, you know, 4-ish percent. Um, that we've been low for a while. If you think pre-pandemic, and it's hard to remember what mm-hmm. the pan- what life was like before the pandemic, we had low unemployment, and we had low inflation. And I don't see personally why we can't get back to that situation. It'll take some time, though. We have Would to you patient. have said that a, a year ago? Uh, I was more concerned. I was mm-hmm. more concerned. But, you know, what caused this inflation? And you have to step back and say, what caused it? Well, it's really three things. One, we had all these supply chain disruptions. Mm. And some of those still exist. I mean, some of those were not out of the woods completely. Second, the fiscal stimulus. We put a lot of money into the hands of Americans, around $6 trillion into the hands of Americans. And third, accommodative monetary policy. That's us, right? We kept interest rates very low. So we've moved to raise interest rates to try to bring demand. So what do we want to do? We want to get demand and supply in balance. Mm -hmm. And so we brought interest rates up to try to do that, and it's slowly doing that. Things are cooling off, but not a lot. We don't want it to cool off a lot. Uh, the fiscal stimulus is pretty much done, and you, you talk to banks. The people are spending through that money that was given to them. And uh, the supply chain, again, the supply chain issues are starting to heal. I got to ask you because you talked about the interest rates, and, p- and consumers are still spending. A lot yeah. of them are using their credit cards to keep the spending yeah. up. And credit card interest rates are going up, yeah. mortgage interest rates going up. Um, 
you know, just explain how the Fed is using these interest rates. And it, it just makes me nervous that at some point yeah. you're going to have all this consumer debt. Yeah. So what what do we do? What is monetary policy? We try to make, in this case, money more expensive. And that's what the interest mm-hmm. rates do, right? They make money more expensive. And that cools off things like the housing market, uh, the auto market, the things that are interest sensitive, right? And so you, that would, people would typically go and get a loan to do. It cools off uh, construction for commercial real estate and, and other construction projects as it makes that credit more expensive for businesses. So again, we're starting to see that. But in my case, I don't want to overdo it. I think we're at a point now where we'll see how the data evolve between now and our next meeting in September. But I think we can hold for a while mm-hmm. where we are and let the economy settle into this situation and then start to bring the interest rates down. I don't expect us doing that for a while, not this year, but sometime probably next year we'll start to bring the rates down. So you don't need to artificially cool. The cooling is happening and you can sort of let it coast. Yeah, that's exactly my view. I think we can let it coast. What economists call long and variable lags of monetary policy. That is, it takes a while. Really catchy term there. Yeah, another way of putting it is it just takes a lot of time for this stuff to catch up, to to have an effect. And I think you said today you think you're going to hit that target rate of 2% by 2025. Yeah, we'll take our time. So we don't have to stomp on the economy to try to get it to cool down quickly because that hurts people too. It's a balancing act here, right? The people that are hurt most by high inflation are those of low to modest income. The people who get laid off first, if we, we really try to cool the economy too much, are people of low to modest income, right. typically. So this is where we, we have to do this carefully. So I got to ask you this, because I've talked to some small business owners, specifically folks who have lower wage jobs available, and they are having a hard time finding people because yeah. people want to make more money. I went to the grocery store yesterday. I was complaining to Avi. I spent $100 on groceries that I probably would have spent 65 to $70 on a couple of years ago. When will people start feeling this optimism that we're starting to see and yeah. the rhetoric from economists like yourself? Yeah, so it's going to take some time. Um, energy prices are very volatile. Just watch gas prices go up and down as you drive down the street. So that is a global market of oil. It's just there are a lot of factors that go into oil prices. Grocery prices, there were issues that hit us, like when eggs shot up, that was an avian (laughs) disease, right? That was an avian disease. It really wasn't a demand issue. It was really a supply issue. That, the grocery prices are starting to cool off. But what I look at in particular are those things that the average American really needs, right? They need shelter. They need food. They need transportation. They need, and I worry about those prices, more than anything else right now. They are starting to cool, but not enough yet. That's why we need to keep going. Not keep going by raising rates, but keep going by holding for a while and get those prices down. Uh, I got an email here from Gregory, who, who I think is worried a little bit about the idea of, of sort of letting us naturally cool down. Yeah. Um, Gregory says, instead of a soft landing, might we be headed to no landing with the economy growing and inflation staying north of 3%? That seems almost as likely as soft landing. And would that mean higher interest rates? I don't think so. Because I ask myself, I I think about this a lot, and I I ask myself, what's different fundamentally in the U.S. economy now than the way it was before the pandemic hit? 
And there are lots of different things that have happened to us. I mean, the pandemic was, you know, incredibly damaging in some ways. But in many ways, not many things have changed. Right. Right. So think back to where we were. So we're low unemployment. We had low. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but we know that there are demographic trends. Demography defines a lot of what's going on. So we know there are demographic trends that are affecting the economy. Us, me, the baby boomers, we're retiring. We're the largest generation in America to go into retirement. That's having an effect on the labor market. Other things are having an effect on the labor market, immigration policy, et cetera. But those things are outside the the realm of monetary policy, but they do affect the economy. So, But I don't think we have to stay in a high inflation regime. I think we can get back to where we were. And if you are just tuning in, we are speaking with Patrick Harker, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. We're talking all things economy, all things inflation. Uh, and if you have a question or a comment, you can email us at studio2 at whyy.org. Both Avi and I are very interested in talking about jobs. You kind of yeah. talked, touched on it just now. Three and a half percent unemployment nationally. I want you to zoom in a little bit on our region. Mm-hmm. What does our job market look like? What are the strong sectors? What sectors are weaker? So manufacturing is weak. And we've been weak for a while. It's, it's cooling off a lot. Uh, in the region. We see that through our Manufacturing Business Outlook survey. Um, hospitality generally is picked up, uh, except for, and, and we see this with restaurants and, and so forth, except for hotels. They're still mm-hmm. pre-pandemic, and Taylor Swift tried to help us there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's not completely back. One, yeah, one more tour, Taylor, <laughs> one more tour. But not exactly back to where we were. Um, so that, that generally, the, the economy here, the labor market's very strong. As you said, though, employers continue to look for workers. Yeah. And, they, and this is where we need to get more people off the sidelines who aren't working right now, don't have the skills, get them the skills, get them the opportunities. We've done a lot of work at the Philly Fed on what we call opportunity occupations, jobs that pay above median wages where you don't need a four-year college degree. We have a whole host. We even have a tool to help people see what those opportunities are for them. We, we need to get people those skills, help them get those skills. And the other thing we need to do, and we've, we've been involved and really led something called the Worker Voices Project at mm. the Fed. And this is a Fed-wide initiative, but Philadelphia and Atlanta Feds were lead, uh, leading this. Employers ask, well, where are the workers? Why aren't they taking the jobs? Well, we went and asked workers, why weren't they taking those jobs? And what we heard from them is that their lives lives are complex, mm. right? They've got a lot of factors, the child care issues, elder care issues, you name it, that are holding them back in some cases. But also, the pandemic gave them a chance to look at their lives and say, you know, I want a job where I'm treated with dignity. Mm. I want a job where my boss doesn't tell me my schedule a day or two in advance. Here, I remember one single mom telling me this. I'm a single mom with kids. I can't be changing my schedule you know, on a dime. So it's I not always about time. hard economic no. incentives that you can measure. Right. Yeah, it's got about some of these sort of uh, yeah. softer. softer things. Yeah. Absolutely. And the word I, we heard a lot was dignity. I want to be treated with dignity. Can I ask you about another uh, recent Fed analysis uh, looking at Philadelphia and other regions' reliance on eds and meds? Yeah. And it seemed like Philadelphia, compared to the average region in this country, was more reliant yeah. On, when I say eds and meds, I'm talking about higher education, institutions, and hospitals. Yeah. Uh, I think you argued earlier today in a speech that you made that that's a, 
good thing, but I wanted to make sure I understood that. Because yeah. uh, reliance it, doesn't always sound like no, a good no, thing. No, no, it could be good or bad. So Philadelphia is 40% above the national average of eds and meds, but it's a huge industry for us. I mean, it's almost half a million workers in this region and about $50 billion in overall economic impact. So we looked at 524 regions across the U.S. and saw how important these institutions were. What matters here is for Philadelphia, we have very strong eds and meds. But if you're in a region where the only game in town is a local state university, and because of demographic changes, what economists call the uh, demographic cliff, the college-age population falling off, you're in trouble. So reliance, it cuts both ways. And that's what we're trying to understand. How can this data be used to help those communities figure out what their future is? Real quickly, is that, where, is that the job growth sector in this region over the next 5, 10 years? Is it still eds and meds, or do you foresee something else emerging? Yeah, the beauty of this region is we're a very diverse region. We have a lot of different industries. But eds and meds are clearly leading the way, particularly the research that's coming out around the mRNA vaccine technologies and cancer therapies that are being you know, really pioneered here in Philadelphia. Well, that is uh, Patrick Harker, president of the Federal Reserve yeah. Bank of Philadelphia. We really appreciate your time. And you're our next door neighbor here at Studio. Yes, you'll have to come so back. Please yes, come back over the, the picket fence anytime. <laughs> okay. All right. Coming up next, Philadelphia author Eric Thomas on his new very funny collection of essays. Congratulations. The best is over. Inspired by his move back to his hometown of Baltimore. You can email your questions to the author to studio2 at whyy.org. Stick with us. Last to come. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. I am Avi Wolfman Arendt, and across from us is author R. Eric Thomas, who is joining us in Studio 2 because he has a brand new book just out today. Today. Congratulations, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. It's so good to be here. And it's called Congratulations, The Best is Over. It's a very funny and insightful collection of essays that he wrote when he moved back to his hometown of Baltimore with his husband, who is a Presbyterian Minister. Now, you may have read Thomas's earlier memoir, Here for It, or <laughs> Known Him. I had to say it like that. I had to <laughs> yeah, say I'm it. just making sure. Here for <laughs> it. It's a pronunciation <laughs> question. <laughs> or you may know him for the popular column he used to write for Elle magazine titled Eric Reads the News. He's also a playwright and hosts The Moth in Philadelphia. Eric Thomas, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you. Thank you for the, putting that sauce on here for it. That I is exactly, to. that's exactly I, ha- how I you could do just it. hear, like, I could hear the sauce. <laughs> so I want to um, jump right in because I, this is not your first, the new book, Congratulations, The Best is Over. It's not your first memoir. Um, I, I want to talk about why you decided to write another one Mm. and why now and this is a unique slice of your life it is it covers a five-year period Uh, i had left philadelphia and moved back to my hometown and i had said i didn't want to move back to baltimore even to be buried which is rude um but it is the way i felt (laughs) i had a complicated relationship with the person Mm -hmm. i was in baltimore and with the city and 
um, I found, you know, I have this, I love this quote. Um, it's laughter through tears is my favorite emotion, right? And, and that's from the uh, play Steel Magnolias, the movie Steel Magnolias. Um, so Dolly Parton says it. So yes, I am gay, if anyone's <laughs> guessing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, it, but it's also an idea that you find in theater, Chekhov, you know? So yes, I'm also that kind of gay. Um, and I kept asking myself, I'm going through these periods of tears, of frustration, of disorientation, lost in my hometown, turning 40, um, you know, finding, trying to find uh, this question of who I am in my marriage, in my career. And then the pandemic hits. And I think a lot of people were sort of like, everything has kind of been thrown off kilter. And my job was to, my day job for Elle was to write a column, a humor column about politics and pop culture. And midway through the pandemic, there's no pop culture. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's getting on you know, Instagram Live, all these celebrities. And I'm like, these people are boring in real yeah. life, unfortunately. <laughs> and everything around us is sort of falling apart. Um, and I think we're still sort of picking up a lot of that. And in the midst of that, I kept asking myself, who am I? Do I have the right dreams? Have I sort of lost my way? Mm. And those questions produced answers and stories and more questions. And that, that is what fueled this book. Yeah, so you moved back to Baltimore. And I, by the way, I should acknowledge we got three Marylanders here. Oh, yes. yes. Living in Philly, mm-hmm. taking over the Philly Public Radio airwaves. <laughs> so the crab cake agenda is thriving here. Um, but um, you, you talk about moving back to Baltimore, and I feel like your relationship with the city is like a moving target through the whole book. Yeah. Like there, At one point, you say it's the greatest city in the world. Mm-hmm. And then at other points, it's like, I can never be happy here. Mm-hmm. I, it's just there's, there's too many ghosts. So when I say Baltimore to you now, that word Baltimore, what surfaces in your mind? Oh, I think right now I think of art. I think it is such an art-filled city. And here's the thing. So I grew up on a block in Baltimore that has been redlined for the last 40 years. My parents still live there. Uh, and uh, across the street from them were all these burnt-out shells of buildings, collapsed ceilings. You could look at, uh, in from the street and see the sky through mm-hmm. the windows. Um, there was no hope in this place, but it was a great place to shoot the television show, The Wire. It was a great yeah. backdrop. Mm-hmm. And so I'm having this experience coming back from college and watching them film this TV show about how hopeless my home was. And that's really hard to to um, um, to incorporate into one's personality, into one's sense of self. Yeah. But over the years, over the time that I spent in Baltimore, I also saw it as a very different kind of place. And and one of the things that I did during that time was I wrote a young adult novel that's set in Baltimore called Kings of Beemore. And that's about two black queer kids having a Ferris Bueller style day off in um, Ferris Bueller's day off style adventure in uh, contemporary Baltimore. And so to do that, to give these boys a story that was not rooted in their trauma, I had to see the beauty in the city. I had to treat it like a new creation because I was a new creation in that city. And I said I had to let the city's ghost go and see what else is there. It's a very food-forward city, very much like Philly. Mm-hmm. It is a art-filled city, much like Philly. There's great murals there. It is a, uh, it's a southern city and a northern city. It's the most southern-northern city and yeah. it's the most northern-southern city. And that has its benefits and its drawbacks, but it is warm. And I see that now in a way that I couldn't see it for so many Mm. years. And I want to talk about the process to getting there, because a lot of people have, especially if you had some issues happen in your childhood growing up in urban areas, you um, your husband told you once that all the places (laughs) (laughs) that you would take 
um, around Baltimore, you would point and it would be a negative mm-hmm. or a sad story. Yeah. How did you go? What was the process for folks who may be going through this themselves with their childhood homes yeah. um, or cities? How did you go from that point of view to this point of view now where it's like a food city it's all these beautiful things well you know it's funny yeah he we would drive through town and i'd be like oh that's where i was in an attempted carjacking and that's where my grandmother's funeral was i'm still mad at what the pastor said and this is like 30 years ago (laughs) and he's like every story is a sad story and i was like i'm just adding color commentary to our ride it's like do you want to ride in silence because we can do that um But I think the process is just telling new stories, you know, making new memories, which is easier said than done. Mm -hmm. And it's a process Mm -hmm. I went through here in Philly as well. We moved back to Philly last year. And I was like, thank you. I'm so excited to be back. And I was like, hey, everybody, I'm back. And everyone was like, oh, we've we've moved on you know it's been five years and the city's different and i was like what's that building what's going on over here i don't agree with this and i had to make new memories i had to lay new soil on the ground um and i think i think asking yourself how can i approach this as if i've never been here before is just a really helpful thing um instead of saying oh i know exactly what goes on here i know the story of this town i know all its limitations and its possibilities. I think that anybody who believes in a city is going to tell you a city is always going to be um, producing new options and new possibilities. That actually sounds like a healing experience. And uh, one of the interesting things about the book, it's called Congratulations, The Best Is Over, and it has a smashed cupcake on the front. <laughs> yeah. And you, boy, you think like a lot of bad things are going to happen to you mm-hmm. over the course of this five years. But in, in a weird way, it's, it's not necessarily that in terms of like the concrete events yeah like your career's going great in mm-hmm. these five years mm-hmm. great relationship marriage you you detail that yeah. um, financial success that it seemed like you'd never had before this five-year period mm-hmm. um, how do you explain the tension between the title of the book and what actually happens over the course of these essays yeah that's a great question I I went through this period in my early 20s and it's sort of like it's related to the photo on the cover of this this smash cupcake where I was like I was sort of at a loss for I was in this dark period in my friendships I'd gone through a friend breakup I was underemployed I was just deeply unhappy and so the interior story was one of failure I was like it's over mm-hmm. and I was in my 20s it's not over in your 20s <laughs> yeah but you don't know you're inside your story you can't see around it mm-hmm. and so I was just like I went on this cupcake making binge I was like I want a cupcake I want a little treat and so I would make, but you can't just make one cupcake. So I would make a dozen cupcakes multiple times a week. And I was living with this bodybuilder. And so he's counting macros. And I'm like, there's icing on the counter. Watch yourself. Um, <laughs> so I was torturing this, this poor man in our house. And, and so I think, I think of that period, these cupcake days. And I compare this period to Balt- in Baltimore to those cupcake days. And I say to myself, Okay, yeah, things were objectively going really well. Why didn't you feel it? Yeah. yeah. Why didn't you feel the joy? And that's I think that's something that a lot of people go through where you're like, everything is going fine. Why don't I feel it? And then when things go bad, you're like, I knew it. I yeah. knew this was gonna happen. And even still, you know, things were going well with my career, but it was completely remote before the pandemic and I didn't know how to be a remote worker. I was like sitting at home watching Kelly and Ryan in my pajamas being like, I think I might be depressed. Yeah. Um, and, and that's hard to climb out, climb out of. And that's a perfect 
tee up to, I think, a, um, an excerpt from the book that mm -hmm. we'd like you to read. It's from the chapter titled Clap Until You Feel It. Yeah. I love this. I love this section. So this is, um, I'll just jump into it. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I am not made smaller by the big feelings. They are, th they are the things that remind me that I'm alive. They are the things that, when I'm in darkness, remind me that I'm searching for the light. They aren't always the things that I need, but I think that inside them, the happiness, the sadness, the joy, the grief, there is truth. I just want to get to the truth. I write to get to the truth. I watch to see the truth. I go to the theater to find the truth. I laugh, and I cry, and I gasp. And, the, and at the end, I clap, and I clap, and I clap until my hands hurt. Mm. And by the way, that essay, like you said, is called Clap Until You Feel It. Mm -hmm. And it's my favorite essay oh, thank yeah. you. in the book. And you weave together a reporting project you did about the daytime talk show host Wendy Williams, mm -hmm. Oprah's Favorite Things episode, mm -hmm. and your experience going on and off antidepressants mm -hmm. in a way that I just could not have foreseen. Can you explain how you're able to thread those three things together? Yeah. Well, I, I've written for years about pop culture and pop culture's relationship to us in a sort of humorous way. And like I said, you know, laughter through tears is kind of my guiding light. And so I see pop culture as therapeutic. You don't like your job. You go home. You watch four hours of The Office. That's, right. you know, and look, look, I don't know anything about therapy. All right. My husband is uh, has a trained therapy. He's like he went to therapy school, mm -hmm. like actual like school for therapy as opposed to what I do, which mm -hmm. is go to like any place that will let me complain about my life. Um, <laughs> So he could probably tell you better than I could whether this is actually true. But I do believe that when you watch stories, other people's stories, fictional stories, non-fictional stories, you get to see a version of what your life could be. And one of the things that I think of when I think of, like, what I want my life to be, I think about Oprah's favorite things. I really yes. do. I always wanted to go. I would try. I was like, how do I get to Oprah's favorite things? And I would – um and I would just dream of being in that audience. And there is such an exuberance that these people experienced. Mm -hmm. It's like going through something traumatically good. And all I want is good trauma. And <laughs> I think of it like church. I yeah. think of it like, like, like a Broadway show that cracks your heart open. I think of it like when climbing a, 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 a lighting pole on Broad Street when a team wins, you know. I think of it like the, the best possible way of experiencing something. And it's the antithesis to me of, like, depression, which is telling me that there's no hope, that nothing is ever going to get better. And so I tried to weave together these two co conflicting ideas, the, in the interior that told me nothing was ever going to be bright again, and the exterior, this, pop, this, this thing that's reaching for hope and reaching for, like, the glimmer of pop culture. And then this experience in the middle where I reported on what it was like to be in a, an audience of a daytime talk show that was experiencing not quite Oprah's favorite things level, but Wendy Williams' audiences were are <laughs> they worked used, up. Yeah, they were very worked up. Yeah, I was sweating through my suit. Um, <laughs> also, why did I wear a suit to Wendy Williams? I don't know. Yeah, I yeah. didn't get the dress code. Yeah, yeah, and and but it, I think it all sort of links together in this idea that we're all looking to feel more than just neutral. We're all looking to feel more than just the everyday humdrum. And sometimes we get it from pop culture. Sometimes we get it from a community, and sometimes we define it in ourselves. Yeah, and and, and just in case people are not familiar with uh, with Oprah favorite things, what it feels like, you, 
uh, we have a clip and it says in 2010, audience members of the Oprah Winfrey show, they were invited to the studio because they had done kind things for people. And she surprised them with one of her most coveted regular segments. And here it is. Take a listen. The truth is that when you meditate, it allows you to think about a lot of things and to clear channel for giving, giving to others. So how about we meditate on this? So for people that don't know, yes. what you're listening to is, is this Favorite Things episode happens once and a you year, love right? This episode, and by you, the way. And you don't know <laughs> which one it's going to be. Yeah. So if you're in the audience that day, yes. you're basically just realizing you're about to be showered with gifts. Yes. yes. And these people are, are beside themselves. Yes. And I have chill bars. And you, yes. get, you get choked up <laughs> hearing their reactions. So oh, just yeah, walk me through what you're thinking about right now. So what you heard on that broadcast, oh my gosh, I, like, I'm like trembling thinking about this. And because it's like, okay, this person's obsessed with Oprah. No, I'm obsessed with feeling something huge. So yeah. these people are sitting there and they're hoping, oh my goodness, they're hoping that maybe this is the show. It's around that time of year when they'd be filming it, but they don't know. And she's in this black dress. And you know, they're like, there's like two chairs and they're going to like maybe talk to a therapist or Dr. Phil or somebody. I don't know. They're like, okay, that sounds great. <laughs> And then she, they, the, the bells start jingling, and you can just feel the electricity turn on the air. And then she rips off the black dress mm. like she's doing a reveal on Drag Race, and <laughs> she's wearing Christmas carb, and the, the curtain parts, and snow starts falling. And it is like, it is like the rapture. It is, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It is, it is. And it sounds ridiculous to say, but I really believe that there are so many experiences in life that say, be smaller. Don't don't give in to the hope that your life can be big and that somebody, even Oprah, can say, hey, I'm going to give you a lot of nice things. It's not about the things. It's about the experience. And that their reaction, the screaming, it's like apocalyptic, truly. It's really yeah. scary. And, and I want to jump in because I, I have to, you, you talk about these feelings mm-hmm. and how you, you, you felt big highs, yeah. lots of joy, but there were also lows yeah. as well. And yet and there was a point where you were on medication and you, you felt nothing. Yeah. And you hated that. I did. I did. I went to, I went to this like therapist who like didn't or not therapist psychiatrist who didn't take insurance and just like a friend like a friend recommended her and she like had this big um parlor house or sort of mansion you know and you step mm-hmm. into the parlor and there's a man there at the front door who's like looks like the, the gate agent at in the wizard of oz he's like who are you here to see and i'm like <laughs> uh, the doctor <laughs> and i walk in and i pay them my money and then i sit down in this very messy office and there's a woman behind the desk who looks like a kathy cartoon and she is the therapist or the psychiatrist and i was like hmm, okay but she was accredited you know this is just how she wanted to run her business and she's like, what do you want? And I was like, to be happy. And she's like, okay. So she gave me a prescription and it flattened everything in my yeah. life. And I think, and I know that medication works for many people. And I know that there are medications that work for me, but this medication turned me into a gray version of myself. Mm. Yeah. So we're going to continue that conversation after a brief break. We are talking with the author R. Eric Thomas about his new book out today called Congratulations, The Best is Over. You're listening to Studio 2. We'll be right back.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And we've been speaking with author R. Eric Thomas here in Studio Two. His new book, just out today, congratulations, the best is over. And we're talking all about it. And we were sort of in the middle of this thought about your experience with um, antidepressants mm-hmm. and how it, it evened things out. And one of the things that it made me think about you know, reading the essay is that it erased the possibility of an Oprah's favorite things level yeah. of joy yeah. in your life. And that living without that possibility seemed sort of in and of itself just too much to bear. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm a real silver linings, you know, uh, uh, Pollyanna, zippity-doo-dah kind of person. Like, I'm always reaching for hope. And so this particular combination of medications was just not the right thing because it, it took all of the edges off. And so it was just the middle. And I talk a lot about these periods that are the middle in this book. And... I don't want to be stuck in the middle. Um, and so it was, for me, the solution was not not dealing with my mental health. For me, the solution was allowing myself to feel the high in a way that was safe. Not high, the, not, yeah. you know, the high point, not the drug high, in a way that was safe and that allowed me to move toward it and not feel like it was limited from me. Um, and that was a journey. I, you know, worked with a therapist for many years. I love my therapist. Um, and we went from... A relationship where I was coming in and I was like, Brian, I have an unhealthy relationship with the city of Baltimore and I think I might be a little permanently sad uh, and I have a job writing jokes. So that's not (laughs) great. Mm -hmm. And me just sort of like dumping it all on the floor. And by by three or four years in, I would go in and we would just have like conversations about about books and about work. And it felt like we were we were. Not, we weren't friends. This was a professional relationship. But it was. It felt like I had moved out of crisis. And mm-hmm. that's a really important thing. Depression yeah. tells you that you are never going to move out of where you are. and tells you that you are always alone. And those are lies. But it's really, really hard to understand that those are lies when you're in the middle of it. Which is why it's important to have other people to tell you. And, and, sometimes, and that's also why it's important to have stories to look to and say, this person realized that this was a lie. Yeah. One of the things that I love about your book, I had not heard of you before thank this you. interview. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll put that out there. Um, but <laughs> when I was reading the book, and I like to, when I haven't heard of it's just to read the book. Don't mm-hmm. look pictures up. Just mm-hmm. read about it. And one, and and then do your re, do my research in yeah. reverse. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I love about it is I did not just reading it initially. I didn't know your race. Mm-hmm. I didn't really figure out um, that you were queer or mm-hmm. anything. You just were this person who loved cupcakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, like you know, it, it started getting deeper, and you mm-hmm. started revealing yourself. Um, uh, the, the the different layers of who you are. Yeah. And one of the things I loved about the way that you talk about writing is that you don't make otherness, all the mm. differences, the centerpiece of your writing. Yeah. Instead, you just tell the story. Can you talk about your approach to telling your story and why making otherness not the center is part of that? Oh, yeah. I think it's so crucial to to 
my life to to not believe that I'm on the margin of my own story. Um, and so when I approach, and this is something I learned in my first book, um, I would explain certain things, cultural things in the text um, to a reader. You know, I have a I have a, a a segment where I talk about the Black Happy Happy Birthday song, Stevie Wonder's Happy mm-hmm. Birthday, um, and I you know, and then I explained it at length uh, as if the reader had never heard it. And my editor was like. Why are you treating this reader like they don't know this? Why are you treating this reader? Because it makes a, a reader who do it, does know it, a black reader, mm. think, oh, this isn't for me. And I've read so many things mm. that told me explicitly or implicitly, this isn't for you. You you can come in, you know. And I've gone so many places um, where they've said this isn't for you. And it's very important that I take that construction out of my mind and I say, I'm going to welcome you into my story. The door is open. There's a charcuterie plate on the side over there. <laughs> you can take your shoes off or put them I on. Know. I don't really care. Um, but this is my story, and I'm at home in this story. And so the aspects of my life, my my race, my sexual orientation, the people that I care about, the things that I think are most important, those things are at home here. And I think that every person can do that. But so many times we're conditioned to say, actually, there is one person. There's, there is the ideal American. There's the ideal reader. There's the ideal listener. And it's not you. And how many of us, if all of us are hearing that, who's hearing Who's hearing it that yeah. it is them, you know? You know, and, and I think that we see it all we see it all over the place. You know, a couple episodes ago, maybe a week or two ago, you were talking about Barbie, Barbenheimer, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of people went to Barbie and said, I see myself here in a way that... Uh, many movies are not allowing me to see myself. And that's it doesn't take anything away from somebody else to say, hey, this is my story, and I welcome you into it. Yeah, I want to zoom forward because we only have a few minutes left toward the end, and you talk about, you move back to Baltimore mm-hmm. as, the, as the, the collection of essays begins, and then you, you leave Baltimore, it's an apartment in Baltimore, right? And then you move to a house that you bought in the suburbs. Yeah. And... You're really working through that move in a lot of ways. <laughs> One of it is I, I felt you trying to take something that could be looked at as flight, abandonment, mm-hmm. and turn it into an act of justice and reclamation, basically saying, I'm going to reclaim this suburban space that was meant to exclude me. Yeah. And I really wanted to know, did you really feel that toward the end? Like mm. I'm in the suburbs as an act of justice, or do you feel like I was trying to convince myself that that was true? Well, you know what? I'm glad that my therapist called in today. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. To the extent you feel comfortable talking no, no, about no, I that, I think no. You're, you're. That's that's fine. I I love thinking about this. I think that there are certain things. Here's the thing. I was I was close to thinking I've I've sort of sum, I've summited the hill. Yeah. When you look at the Google map for the house that we we bought. Across the street, you can see in the Google map a, a Trump sign on the house across mm-hmm. the street. And I was like, oh, this is a story that, the, that it's like, you're not actually welcome here. But I, we moved anyway and because we believed, we had hope. But during, you know, this was mid-pandemic. We experienced January 6th in the house. We experienced the election in the house. We experienced, like, some real legitimate fears about our safety in that house. And I just... And I don't think it's inherent to the suburbs or to the house or to that neighborhood. I think it's the, like there's inherent to America that there's always going to be this question wherever I go, whether it's downtown Philadelphia, whether it's out in, in Mount Airy, Germantown, Baltimore, Phoenix, Arizona. I'm always going to have the question: Am I am I really am I really making the strides that I want to make? Mm. 
But I, I can't live in that question. I want to be my ancestors' wildest dreams. Sometimes I'm in my ancestors' indigestion dream, and that's okay, too. <laughs> I can be something that is, uh, that is in progress along the way. So, no, I don't think that buying that house was the ultimate act of justice, but I think it was a step in my own development. Yeah, and we only have about a minute left with you, but I want you met your husband in Philadelphia. I did. And you have a lot of, you're back in Philly. Yeah. Can you talk about this city? Because you have a lot of love for Philadelphia. Oh, ring-a-ding-ding. I love the city. <laughs> I love the city. Um, I love how walkable it is. I love the I love the public art. I love complaining that the subway doesn't run all night anymore because it should. I want to I ride the subway at night. I think that Philadelphia is a city that is so in touch with its um, its weirdness, its edges, its um, its possibility, and um, I found you know I found great artistic success here, and I found great community here, mm-hmm. and I, I it's it is a city that has fulfilled its promise for me, and I hope that everyone else experiences that as well. Well, well, uh, I'll just read one more quote before <laughs> we let you go, where you describe NPR. Um, <laughs> A S M R S O S N P R, where they are broadcasting the worst news you've ever heard in the most relaxing, dulcet tones. I just want to applaud you well, for that you wonderful for that description <laughs> of our news service, um, and would love to have you back another time. Um, but that yes. is our Eric Thomas. His new book is called Congratulations, The Best is Over. He also has a new play debuting this spring at the Azuka Theater called An Army of Lovers. And tonight he will be speaking at the Free Library at 730 Eric, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Good luck tonight. Well, that's it for today's edition of Studio Two. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Adam Stanzawiski is our engineer. And for more on our show, you can go to whyy.org slash Studio Two. And you can find us wherever you get your pods. From Studio Two and WHYY in Philly, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.